you want to open up your Bibles, um, we are continuing in our study of Mark today. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 and verses 18 to 22. I'll give you a moment to get there in your Bibles. And while you're doing that, I will just pray um, just as we hear God's word for today. Father God, it's, it's our prayer today that um, church service isn't just about coming and being in a certain geographical location, uh, having a bit of a jolly and going home. This is about a two-way conversation between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and his children. And so I pray today that I would be able to communicate your word free from distortion, Lord, that you would give me uh, grace to preach your word as it is. And also, Father, that you prepare the soil of our hearts to receive the good seed that you're going to sow today. We believe that we will not leave this place the same that we came in, but we will leave encouraged, built up, and Father brought another step along the journey of sanctification on this Lord's Day. So, Lord, as we hear your word right now, may there be a reverence in this place. Uh, may I also treat your word with reverence. And may your Holy Spirit move in power upon all those here this afternoon and watching via the stream. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Um, that's what I'm in today. And then we'll, we'll jump in. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine, skin, sorry, new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Thus, thus saith the Lord." Amen. Well, we're drawing to a close today of chapter 2 in our study through Mark's gospel. And today's passage covers the third of four clashes that Jesus has with the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, Matthew's gospel, and Luke records this particular story as well, Matthew's gospel records that it was actually the disciples of John who came to ask Jesus this question about fasting, whereas Mark simply tells us that it was some people. Luke, on the other hand, seems to connect this question, this event, with the feast. Remember the last time we preached on this? Uh, the feast that was happening at Levi's house, and that it was the scribes who were asking the question. I think there's no reason to think that the Gospels are at odds with one another at this point. You know, we're told in each gospel that a group of people came to ask Jesus the question about fasting. I think it's quite reasonable to infer that some of that number were disciples of John, some of that number were scribes, and maybe some were Pharisees. It seems sensible, I think, anyway, to connect what's happening here in these verses with what happened 
in the last portion of scripture concerning the feast uh, at Levi's house. Luke, for example, records it like this in his gospel. Um, I shall read it for you. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So that's how Luke records it. You can see there's no gap in between what was happening at the feast with Levi and this question about fasting. It's important to remember when we read our Bibles, brothers and sisters, that originally there were no chapters, there were no verses, there were no subheadings of certain sections. Those are not the inspired parts. And so it sometimes gives us a bit of work when we have to read the Bible not to divvy up um, the actual witness of scripture into these little subheadings. It's, it's sometimes we have to do that bit of thinking. So these questions that are asked, this first question, why the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I don't know if you've noticed in life, but there are questions which you get asked which are just honest pursuits of information, aren't there? There are, there are such things as honest questions. People inquire um, about something that you're wearing. Where did you get that from? And it's an honest question, and it wants an answer. It wants information. But there are other sorts of questions that you get asked, and these sorts of questions um, are sometimes where the inquirer maybe wants a bit more than information. Perhaps they want to uh, wrong foot the person that they're asking the question of. And this is what we call a loaded question. A loaded question. How many of you have ever been asked a loaded question before? They, they, they happen. And um, Jesus is used to it. And I love the way he always handles questions. Jesus and his disciples, we have to remember at this moment, when they're being asked this, it's quite possible. I imagine them with like a, you know, a chicken leg in their hand and they've just come outside from the feast. Why is it that John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but you, and they're stood there still eating, why is it that you are always eating and drinking? You know, I imagine it like that. Um, we don't know that for sure, but I think it's an interesting picture. So, uh, it was intended, this question was intended to do a bit more than just garner information. It was intended to show Jesus, his ministry, and his disciples in a less than favorable light in comparison with John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees. So here we've got John's disciples and the Pharisees piously observing a fast to the Lord. They're being diligent, they're holy, they're reserved, certainly not hanging around with sinners and tax collectors, but fasting, fasting to the Lord. And here is Jesus with his disciples stuffing their faces in the presence of a tax collector. You can imagine it, can't you? They're incredulous and they're thinking, you say you're somebody special? People think you're a big shot? Well, look at these disciples fasting to the Lord and look at you. Look at you, see? 
we've shown you up for what you really are. You can see this question, there's a bit more to it than meets the eye. John Calvin said that there's no room for doubt that the Pharisees maliciously endeavored by this stratagem to draw the disciples of John to their party and to produce a quarrel between them and the disciples of Christ. And I think, sadly, uh, we as Christians must be on our guard against these types of, I think England just scored, I just heard a big roar. Um, <laughs> well, hooray. But um, these sorts of questions get asked in church circles. And I think it's a sad fact, but we in the church have to be guarded against partisanship. You know where people will ask a question and you know it's loaded and it's intended maybe to cause division and rifts in between you and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to be guarded against this. These things do happen. You can get factions arising in the body of Christ even today. And it often comes around by these sorts of probing loaded questions. For a little bit of background, the Pharisees came onto the scene around 200 years before Jesus was born. So a recent addition to the scene at this time. By this point, when they're speaking to Jesus, the Pharisees had really become the kind of dominant force in Orthodox Judaism. And they didn't just observe the law, but also many other traditions and rituals that had been added. It was something called the tradition of the elders. And this was a bunch of other rules that the Pharisees observed. Now, the law actually only prescribed one fast per year. And that was the fast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. However, the Pharisees, they would fast religiously on Mondays and Thursdays. Every week they would fast from dawn till dusk. And we know from scripture, from Jesus' rebukes of the Pharisees, that they always made a bit of a fuss about it. They would disfigure their faces, we're told, so that people would know that they were observing a fast. The point being that I'm trying to make here is that the Pharisees are seeming to make out that Jesus isn't being very diligent in his observance of God's law. But the fact is, Jesus actually wasn't breaking any law by not fasting. He wasn't being disobedient. He wasn't being licentious. The Pharisees were angry, not because he wasn't obeying God's laws, but because he wasn't obeying their man-made traditions, which had been added onto God's law. And this is the crux of what I'm going to speak about today. This, this is the, the, the nub of everything. We're going to talk about legalism. Legalism versus the gospel. And this right here, what the Pharisees are doing, really is the very essence of what we call legalism. It's a word that I think gets thrown around with a little bit too much abandon these days. And sometimes it's a bit unfair. Because I've been called a legalist on several occasions um, simply for trying to interpret God's word and be fair with what it says. Being legalistic isn't being rigorous with the scriptures. You know, actually believing that scripture teaches doctrine and then wanting to expound that doctrine isn't being legalistic. It's simply wanting to know God's word. So often that gets thrown around, you know. Oh, don't be so legalistic talking about all these doctrines and 
election and all these things. It's just so legalistic. You know, we just, we're just free. We just believe God is love. He just loves everyone and that's it. And as long as you can roll with that, you don't need all of the other bits and bobs uh, that you talk about with your doctrines and what have you. We just need to believe in love. Love is the way. Love wins. And if we can all just come along on Sundays and have a jolly good time, well, isn't that wonderful? And won't God be pleased with that? We don't want any of your legalistic teaching. Thank you. That's not legalism. That's actually, um, that's actually just trying to be honest with God's word. So to preach the scriptures, uh, to hold one another accountable to God's revealed word, in love, of course, isn't being legalistic. There is a sort of legalism uh, whereby people can try to hold other brothers and sisters accountable to God's word, but without love. Um, They do it through bullying and manipulation. Um, That's a form of legalism. But when we hold one another accountable to God's word in love, that's that's just being Christian. It's not being legalistic. Legalism true legalism, is holding people accountable, not to the word of God, but holding them accountable to the traditions of men. That's what real legalism is. See, legalism is expansive in its practice. It adds on lots of other things that you need to do and obey um, and what have you. It's expansive in its practice, but it's reductive in its theology of God. What I mean by that is it ma- legalism always maximizes what you do. Legalism will always maximize your role in your salvation, and it will always minimize God's role in your salvation. It always makes more of what you need to do and less of what God has already done. So how will you know if you have been sat under a legalistic ministry? Well, you'll know because you constantly feel that you aren't doing enough. You'll never be able to feel a true joy, a true satisfaction, a real rest. You'll never feel those things. You'll either feel pride when you manage to attain the standard that's being set for you, or you'll feel despair when you don't attain the standard being set for you. In a legalistic system, you'll always feel like you're on the edge of a breakthrough which never truly comes. That's legalism. That's what legalism does. In contrast to that, Jesus compares his own ministry to a wedding feast, to a feast, to a party, and he compares himself to the bridegroom. Jesus says to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The cool thing is, you know, I've been to weddings. I've served at a lot of weddings. I've been a best man. Um, I've, I've played in the band at lots of weddings. I've married people. I've done pretty much every job that a man can do at, at a wedding. And to be honest, they're, they're quite busy. They're quite busy, aren't they? If you've ever served in a wedding, been a groomsman, been a bridesmaid, you'll know, like, it, it, you know, you don't get to relax until after the speeches are done, and then you can pretty much, you know, more or less let down your hair. Um, but, but they're not, 
you know, they're not free for all parties if you're involved, if you're doing things. Whereas Jewish weddings and, and stuff like that, Jewish um, wedding parties were different. It would have been a great offense if you were a friend, um, a beloved friend of the bridegroom, and you were off doing stuff. That would have been a great offense. At Jewish weddings, the guests had no responsibility but to enjoy the festivities. Okay, so when Jesus is comparing his ministry to uh, a wedding, that's the picture that you get, is that actually, if you're invited to that wedding, your job is literally to sit back and enjoy yourself. That sounds like good news to me, all right? So it wasn't like our weddings where if you're a groomsman or a bridesmaid, you're super busy. Uh, It was a party. It was fun. It was a great time, and your job was to kick back and enjoy yourself with the bridegroom. And this here is a picture for us of what it means to be with Jesus, to be a Christian, that the work's done. The bridegroom has done it. We're here to sit and enjoy his party with him. The contrast is stark, I think, between the dead, dry, religious practices of the Pharisees and this wedding feast picture, which I think is a picture of Jesus and his ministry. It's a, dry, it's a big, stark contrast. Fasting and feasting. Jesus is saying, my people, my children, my sheep, they're not going to be students in a classroom ultimately, but they are going to be guests at my wedding. To follow Jesus is to celebrate with Jesus, is to enjoy him, it's to have a constant, never-ending, eternal feast with Jesus. You know, I think we sometimes forget that that's the truth, that Christianity is to be a feast, not a famine. It doesn't mean there won't be times of pain. It doesn't mean there won't be seasons of confusion and loss even in our life. Since actually Jesus immediately follows it, doesn't he, with when the bridegroom is taken away from them, well, they'll fast in that day. And that's actually a a forewarning of him being taken from his disciples at the cross and their subsequent confusion and sorrow. And the same will be true of us in this life to a lesser degree degree in that we will have days where we experience loss, where we experience the pain of separation from loved ones, where we experience confusion, when we've perhaps prayed for something and we haven't seen our hopes manifest. We'll have days of deep sadness. But the wonderful truth is that we, as believers, as God's children, will never lose Jesus. Whatever else we lose, we'll never lose Jesus. Jesus' sheep will never be taken from him, and he will never be taken from his sheep. Though we as Christians, just like Job, we might lose many things in this life, and, and I know that many of you have experienced loss at profound levels. Many of us will experience loss in this life, but as a Christian, this, this is the joy. This is, this is where the feast happens, is that we will never lose the Holy Spirit. We'll never lose the seal of our salvation, the seal of the promise. And in the Spirit of God, there is a constant and continual feast. There's always more joy than you'll ever need 
in him. There's always more strength to help you endure in the Holy Spirit. That, that's where the feast is. It's in him. It's with him. And so I believe that the Christian life ultimately is a life of feasting with God, of sharing in what he provides for us, which is endless. And it's a foreshadowing of the ultimate wedding feast when we attend the wedding of the bridegroom with his church. Heaven is going to be the ultimate wedding feast and we're being prepared for that. Jesus does say that fasting does serve a purpose. I don't want you to understand by today's message that fasting equals bad, feasting equals good, because he does say there will come a day when they fast, when the bridegroom is taken from them. And fasting is of great use to us in times of testing. Depriving the physical body of food for a certain period of time causes us to build strength in the spirit man. I think we've talked before about the walk of Christianity, that it is a constant battle between the spirit man and the flesh, or the body of sin, as Paul calls it. Until we go to glory, we'll, we'll have this physical body, and it has appetites and desires still that we must wage war with in the spirit. And it's through fasting that we actually arm our spirit man to overcome. And the, the flesh becomes weaker and the spirit becomes stronger. I'm sure many of you have, have experienced that. Seasons of prayer and fasting that you've been led into by the Lord that has strengthened you to endure through difficult moments. Fasting and prayer to us are two great friends. They're two great friends upon our journey of spiritual development. God has imbued these disciplines with a specific life-giving power that we shouldn't ignore. We shouldn't pass it by. We're never, however, to allow them to just become dry religious practices. That's the thing. That's the thing that Jesus is talking about. These two things of prayer and fasting, so powerful in your life. And I really do want to encourage you to seek God. Maybe it's something that you want to look into, something you want to bring back into your Christian walk. Maybe a season of fasting. Maybe a day a week when you fast and pray. Um, seek God about it. See, uh, see where he leads you. These are powerful and valuable practices. However, Jesus is saying don't turn them into dry, dead religious practices that you somehow think are going to earn you some kind of a, you know, righteousness before God. Don't let those things happen. He says no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wide skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. We've heard this passage quite a lot. Whenever a minister wants to pump up his new vision for the year, this is what gets wheeled out, you know? New wine and new wineskins. God is doing something new. Get the new wineskins. You know, there's new wine. You'll hear that whenever somebody's vision casting <laughs> or whenever somebody feels there's, there's something new happening. But what did Jesus mean to represent by the unshrunk cloth and the old garment? And what did he mean for us to understand by the new wine and the old wineskins? Is the untrunk piece of cloth the synonymous with the new wine? 
Are they representing the same thing or a different thing? Well, the untrunk piece of cloth and the new wine are indeed a picture of the same thing. They're synonymous with one another, as are the old garment and the old wineskin. The chief impression of both parables is their finality. I want to see this, these two parables here, the, the untrunk piece of cloth on the old garment and the new wine in the old wineskins. The impression of both is their finality. The unshrunken patch will pull away. There's no might in it. It's going to pull away from the old garment, and it's going to make the tear worse. The Greek word for pull away, erain, is the root word in verse 20 describing the bridegroom being taken from them. Likewise, the wineskins will be burst and ruined. Actually, that word in Greek, apolemai, is the word um, used in John 3.16, where it says, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all who believe in him might not apolemai, might not be destroyed, might not perish. So there's a definite destruction happening here. It's going to happen if ever the new wine enters old wine skins. In both instances, something that was once serviceable, the old garment and the old wineskin, both once serviceable, are destroyed and of no further use when the unshrunk garment, the unshrunk cloth is added and when the new wine is poured in. Now, some have taken the unshrunk cloth and the new wine to represent the kingdom of God. And that's not a bad interpretation. There are some that believe they represent the kingdom. Still others have felt that these two pictures of the untrunk cloth and the new wine actually relate to Jesus' disciples and their unfitness for being added or for taking on the practices of the Pharisees. I'm not sure that's necessarily correct. And as I say, some don't tend to preach this in context at all and they just take um, the new wine and the, 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 the new untrunk garment to mean just something, just something new that God is doing, and it's a principle. And I don't think there's necessarily anything dreadfully wrong about that, but it's not what Jesus was talking about. He's not talking about a fresh vision. He's not talking about some general new thing God is doing. Jesus is actually speaking particularly of himself. He's talking of himself, of his ministry, and ultimately, guess what? Of Christianity. He's talking about his ministry and ultimately of the Christian faith. Christ is the unshrunk cloth. Christ is the new wine. It's Jesus and it's Christianity that can't be amalgamated into pre-existing religious structures. To make his own disciples observe the traditions laid out by the Pharisees would have been to put new wine into old wineskins, destroying the both of them. The Galatian church, actually, if you've read Galatians, it's fiery. It's a fiery letter. The Galatians were actually rebuked by the Apostle Paul for attempting to do the exact same thing that Jesus is talking about right here. What they were being led into doing was to add the works of the law to what they'd received through faith apart from works. I want you to follow with me here. There's some theology happening. Okay, so track with me. The Galatians were being led astray, weren't they? They were being led astray by a group called 
the Judaizers, who were false teachers, first century false teachers, who taught that the new Galatian believers, who were Gentiles, needed to be circumcised. They had to be circumcised as well as receiving Christ by faith, as well as receiving the Holy Spirit. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for them to just have Christ by faith and have the Holy Spirit. They needed to be circumcised according to the law, or otherwise it wasn't a done deal. They weren't accepted by God. Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 2 to 4, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Scary. That is literally to add the unshrunk piece of cloth to the old garment. That is to put new wine, the new wine of the gospel of grace into an old busted up wineskin that can't contain it. Christianity stands apart from every other religion in all of human history. It stands not on works of man, but on the finished work of Christ. As the old phrase goes, religion says do, Christianity says done. The enemy knows, the enemy knows this, that if if he can get confessing Christians to meld their faith, to meld their faith in Christ with some other form, it doesn't matter what form, but some other form of works-based religion, then the new wine of the gospel will be destroyed in them. That's what the devil wants to do. So he's raised up throughout the generations, false teachers in every generation, to lead Christians back into some form of works-based religion and away from the new wine of the gospel of grace. Always. And in many cases, what these teachers have taught, and they still do it today, is, yeah, keep your faith in Jesus. Oh, you need that. But you also need to do this. There's a, there's a melding that they want to, they want for Christians, or the devil wants for Christians to amalgamate grace with works. You must also do this as well as faith in Christ. In the first century, there were the Judaizers. Yeah, wonderful. You've accepted Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit, but have you been circumcised? You must be circumcised. You know, later on came the Gnostics, who was slightly different. Rather than mixing Christianity and the new gospel of grace with the law, the, the Gnostics mixed Christianity with pagan religion. You know, this idea of ascended masters and wisdom that we must attain, and there's this whole picture of revelation, and there are certain haves at the top of the pyramid and have nots down here and we must attain revelation from further up the pyramid of revelation. And then came the Roman church, the papists with mixing Christianity with pagan philosophy. And now in this time we have a plethora of false teachers teaching adherence to extra biblical traditions. It's difficult to spot them sometimes, but it will always be 
that you must do something else other than simply put your trust in Jesus and his word. There's always something else you've got to do. It's never just enough to believe on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the social justice gospel. Unless you also adhere to other such theories alongside the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, you're not truly a Christian. Unless you're an activist in certain areas, well, you're not truly a Christian. We have the political gospel. Unless you vote this certain way, you're not a Christian. Or we have the prosperity gospel. You must make these declarations. You must tithe this amount. You must give this. You must sow this. You must declare and decree your prosperity in the nations for it to happen. There's always extra tradition, traditions rather that get added onto the gospel of grace. That's why at this church we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way by which anyone may be saved, period. Christ alone. We join in with the reformers in stating the five solas that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. That word alone counts for a lot. It prevents the devil from sneaking in little additions in there. The new wine of the covenant of grace is this. God wins. God wins. He gets what he paid for. Nobody will prevent him from glorifying himself in the salvation of sinners in this world. To drink the new wine for you is to know that this is wonderful. Your sin can never outrun the grace of God. That's the new wine. Your sin can never outrun the grace of God. It's to know that God's love for the Christian is completely unstoppable. Completely unstoppable. Because those who are in Christ stand absolutely and perfectly justified before God. Not on account of anything they've done or on account of anything they will do but solely on the basis of what Jesus has already done. To stand before God on the basis of anything else, save the work of Jesus Christ, is to stand condemned. Brothers and sisters, our faith has to rest on Jesus and on Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus your works. Not Jesus plus your ministry. Not Jesus plus your testimonies. And not Jesus plus your activism or whatever else that you think can add to that. Just Jesus. My question today is, where do we stand? Where does our faith rest? Is the blood of Jesus the most precious thing to us? Is that new wine of the covenant something that we will protect above all other things? Are we aware that in our trials and struggles in this earth that we have a feast set before us every day? That the Lord literally prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies? 
and it's available to us. I struggle to remember that some days, guys. I'll be honest with you. When I have difficult moments, my temptation is always to indulge my fear, to indulge my worries, to indulge my feeling of sadness. But by fasting, by prayer, by reading of the word, we can access that feast that God has laid for us in the tough times. All I would encourage you to do today is simply ask that question, where is my faith resting today? Have I valued the blood of Jesus above all other things? Will I be guarded against false gospels seeking to add to what Jesus has already done? Will I be guarded against those things? And also, will I walk this week knowing that God has prepared a feast for me, that Christianity is a religion of feasting? I can walk in that joy knowing that whatever happens to me this week, I don't know. You don't know what will happen to you. Whatever happens to you this week, there's a feast prepared for you. It's accessible through the Holy Spirit. Whatever you need on any given day is there for you in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're sorry for sometimes forgetting that following you isn't just like following any other religion. Following you, Lord Jesus, isn't just mere obedience to traditions and going to church and trying to be a nice person. Following you is a supernatural, radical call into a feast. You are the bridegroom. We are the guests. Our job is to sit and enjoy what you've already done, what you've prepared for us. And God, I just pray we glory in that. I pray we're good wedding guests, not the kind of wedding guests that complain. Oh, you know, I wish I could be doing something to help out. I pray we're the kind of wedding guests that sit back, relax, and enjoy what you've prepared for us, whatever might come our way that that wine that you give us to drink would be precious to us. And that, Lord, if we are even just standing with one toe on our own works in order to justify us before you, Lord, help us to take it off. All of our works are just filthy rags compared to what you've done for us. So, Lord, we pray that if there are any people listening in today or watching this video after the events, Lord, that don't currently know you, Lord, that for them, maybe these concepts of grace, justification, salvation are alien words, Lord. We pray that you would convict by your Holy Spirit, convict of sin, and draw your people to yourself through this word today. And Lord, that we might stand before you and declare that only through the blood of Jesus are we saved. Amen.